0: Once again to the perimeter church podcast if you're a farmer and you've spent a lot of money on seed you don't just throw it anywhere unless you're Jesus teaching team member Caleb click starts the new series hidden kingdom with this sermon entitled the seed and the sower which covers mark chapter 4 verses 1 to 20 For more information and watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today.
1: Good morning, church family. Our scripture today is from Mark 4, 1 through 20. Again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered around him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land It withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold, and sixtyfold, and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve, asked him about the parables, and he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while, Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And the others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word. And it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil, are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. This is the word of the Lord.
2: Let's pray together. Oh, make your word a swift word, passing from the ear to the heart, from the heart to the lip in conversation. That is, the rain returns not empty, so neither may your word but accomplish that for which it is given. Amen. Gracious Father, I ask this morning, would you take this anxious heart of mine and would you bring it to rest in the sufficiency of your Son, Jesus. And would your word go out in such a way, Lord, that we would be left in awe at the beauty of the one you have sent for people like us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I don't know how your summers have gone so far, but in the Klick House, Summertime means lots of time in a car with very small children. Uh, And that brings things that maybe before I became a parent I didn't really expect. One of those is that if you put six people in a car, um, we don't all like the same things. And we don't all like them all at the same moment. Uh, The responses to things you would think would be universal are oftentimes about as widely varied as you could imagine. If I tell a dad joke, which I do too often, one girl will laugh and just giggle hilariously, another one will laugh not because they understand but because the other girl's laughing, one girl will roll her eyes, and the last one, she'll just break into tears because she'll think I killed like the family pet or something. Uh, if, if I put on a song, one girl will start singing it, two will just act like nothing is happening, and one, one will cry. If I pass out food, any kind of food, the best of food. Two kids will gobble it up, one will nibble at it, and one, you've guessed it, she will cry. There's more tears than I ever expected in parenthood. The same things, in the same moment, to members of the same family, and yet the response, the responses are wildly different, aren't they? I mean, this is a pattern that we see in all of life. It's what shows up every Friday night when you or your significant other or your friend, you try to turn on a TV show. What you love is not necessarily what they do. But the place, the place where this shows up in its most mysterious form is when it comes to the word of the gospel. Because what we hear in the word of the gospel, this is supposed to be the greatest news that the world has ever heard. It's the good news of the God who created the heavens and the earth and yet who in love descended into this world in space and in time and in history to save rebellious and broken people and to restore everything that sin is hurt and wounded. A God who comes and offers himself to us, not as those who have earned it, but instead as a gift of his grace, and that word, it comes into this world, and it falls on our hearts, and the response, it's a lot like the response I get in my car. It's all over the map. To some of you, the gospel is a word that you've heard a million times over, and it evokes absolutely nothing in you. You're here this morning because you're just trying to be nice to some member of your family and you wouldn't be here otherwise. To others of you, maybe it's a word you heard and for a period found joy in it, but then life life got hard and things got busy and over time you fell away. Others of you Maybe it's a word that you heard with joy and you have believed and trusted in, but it hasn't transformed you in the way that you expected or at the pace that you desired. I mean, if I'm honest, when I came to Christ, I thought I would suddenly be anxiety-free and I would be as gentle as Mr. Rogers and as evangelistic as Francis Schaeffer, and it just hasn't happened. What's going on? Why does the best news the world has ever heard, the news of this kingdom, why does it look not strong but weak? Why does it evoke such different reactions from different people? What is happening? Over the next two weeks, we're going to see Jesus in Mark 4 begin to give the answer. In the Gospel of Mark, Mark, he just doesn't make any bones about what he's doing. Mark 1 verse 1 says, this is the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He is very clear what he's telling you. And everything that follows in the book, every event that takes place, it screams, this is the truth. Jesus is baptized. God speaks from heaven. This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. Jesus begins his ministry. Demons flee. The lame walk. The blind see. Jesus begins to proclaim the kingdom, a kingdom that's not for the righteous, but for sinners. And he is not just proclaiming that, he is embodying it, inviting tax collectors and prostitutes to his table, not as projects, but as friends. And yet, though the word of the kingdom is being proclaimed and Jesus is announcing his presence, the response, the response is varied at best. I mean, we're barely three chapters in, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders, they already want Jesus dead. The crowds are flocking to him, but based on Jesus' reaction, it doesn't seem like they're flocking to him for the right reason. And in the verses just before our text today, Jesus' family, his mother and his brother show up, and this really odd thing happens it's revealed that they're not on the inside looking out. They're on the outside looking in. They're just as confused as everyone else. And Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he has only this small band of disciples, these men and women who frankly only Jesus could love, who most of the time seem pretty confused too, what's happening? Why does this kingdom seem not strong but weak? Mark 4, in Mark 4 Jesus says here's why. Because my kingdom is a hidden kingdom. It's one that comes not in what looks like power, but in what looks like weakness, and yet that very weakness is the power of God to save. It's the good news that turns people's lives inside out and transforms not only them, but the world. And he begins his answer, as he so often does, with a parable. Verses one to nine, Jesus is standing on a boat, the people are on the seashore, and it says in verse two, he is teaching them in parables, meaning more than one. And then he gets to this one last parable, one that is apparently more important even than the others because he says this thing that should catch all of our ears. He says, verse 3, listen, it's a command. He's saying pay attention to this. There is more here than meets the eye. There is something here you have to know about me and my kingdom. And then he tells this story that is just frankly disorienting. It's both familiar and unfamiliar. And you know, if you don't know what a parable is, they're just these stories or analogies drawn from everyday life that are supposed to give insight into who Jesus is and what his kingdom is. And Jesus here, he tells a story drawn from everyday life that on the one hand is familiar. There is a sower sowing seed. You're in an agricultural society. This is something you see every single day. Maybe you even do this. But then, then things get weird because the sower's doing everything wrong. You know, you, when you start reading the commentaries, the commentators are stumbling all over themselves to try to find some good reason that this sower is just throwing their seed everywhere. Some of them argue that maybe they throw the seed and then they plow the soil, and maybe that was the pattern that they followed when they would till the soil in the old days. And based on the most recent historical evidence, that seems to be bunk now. It's not true. In fact, when you read the Jewish Mishnah, the oral tradition, there are actually rules about how you sow seeds. It's supposed to be orderly, methodical. The seeds are not to be wasted. Jesus' sower defies all of that. He doesn't seem methodical. He doesn't seem careful. He seems reckless, even wasteful. He is throwing his seed on places that seemingly have no hope of being fruitful. He throws it on the path where the birds snatch it away. He throws it on the rocky ground where the sun withers it away because there's no roots. He he throws it into the thorny ground where the thorns grow up and they choke it so that nothing happens. It looks like absolute foolishness. And then Jesus in verse 8, he says, but some seed, some seed fell on good soil. And this seed, it doesn't just bear some fruit. It doesn't even just bear normal fruit. It bears 30, 60, 100 fold. It's a farmer throwing down his seed and waking up in the morning only to discover that Jack's beanstalk is now reaching to the heavens. It's a harvest of miraculous proportions What looks like foolishness has proven to be wisdom, and what looks like weakness has proven to be strength. And then Jesus returns to the command he gave in verse three. Listen. He who has ears to hear, verse nine, let him hear. There is something here you need to know, and you can imagine the crowd scattered on the seashore listening to this story, bending their ears to what he is saying, and waiting for Jesus to do what preachers are supposed to do, explain the story. But what does Jesus do? He leaves. He just stops, leaving the crowd confused, and not just the crowd, the disciples, because what? do we hear that the disciples do next? They go to Jesus with questions. Verse 10. And when he was alone, so not with the crowd, those around him with the 12 asked him about the parables. I mean, he, Mark doesn't tell us what the questions are. But you can imagine, can't you? I mean, they're probably like us. If we had sat there and heard that story and Jesus just walked away, we're going, Jesus, what in the world are you talking about? People are confused by you right now. Like, the religious leaders wanna kill you. The crowds don't seem to understand you. Your own family seems confused by you. We don't fully understand what's happening. Just speak plainly. Tell us what it is you mean. What is this parable about? Not just this one, notice, it's all of them. The parable's plural. And Jesus, Jesus gives a response that's as confusing as the parable. Verses 11 and 12, he comes to them and says, and he said to them, to you, to my disciples, To those who have seen and heard in me the voice of God, to those who recognize me, God's presence in the world to save, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. God has opened your eyes and your ears and your hearts to the reality of his saving work in me, and he has given it to you not as something you've earned, but purely as a gift. But for those outside, and here's where the... What Jesus says gets hard. For those outside, everything, including Jesus, is in parables. For those at this moment like Jesus' family, like the crowds, and like the religious leaders, those who look at Jesus and see not the savior of sinners, but instead a threat to what they love, who see nothing but a man, Jesus says to them, the way is barred. It's all parables. And I'm telling these parables with this purpose, quoting from Isaiah 6, so that they may indeed see but not perceive and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven to which every one of us goes, what? How is that an answer? But here's what I think Jesus is saying. And the best picture I can think of to explain this comes from the very end of C.S. Lewis's book, The Last Battle. And you don't need to know the story to understand this illustration, so don't, don't worry about that. At the very end of the book, there's this climactic battle between good and evil. Evil seems to be winning in the the magical land of Narnia, and good is being defeated. And those who represent the side of good, the side of Aslan, the lion who represents Jesus in the story, they have been grabbed by the arms, and they are being thrown forcibly through this stable door into this dim, dark stable in which they think there is only death waiting for them. Because they are convinced and everyone outside is convinced that what is in this stable, it is something evil, something awful, something that will bring not life but death. But when they pass through the stable door and the door slams shut behind them, when they open their eyes, it's not darkness and death. It's light and life. Everywhere they look is not a stable But beauty and glory, a whole world somehow hidden inside would look like one room. And everything they see, it is so glorious, so beyond their comprehension, they are afraid to touch it. But they are told that everything in it, it is theirs to use as they see fit when they look at themselves They realize that while they just moments ago were covered in the dirt and the grime of battle, now they have been cleansed in a way deeper than any cleaning they have ever known. And they are wearing not armor that has been dented from many blows, they are wearing the robes of kings and queens. And one of the heroes goes to the stable door because he wants to know what's going on because the door is just standing there in the middle of the world. And he peers through the keyhole And when he looks outside, he sees the dark, broken world they just left. The people are still milling around, wondering if death has come on those who have gone inside that stable. And he turns around smiling and he says this, it seems then that the stable seen from within and the stable seen from without are two different places. Yes, said the Lord Diggory, Its inside is bigger than its outside. Yes, said Queen Lucy, in our world too, not the world of Narnia, but this one, a stable once had something inside it that was bigger than our whole world. That's how parables work. For those who are on the inside, for those who see in the enigma that is Jesus not death but life, not a madman but a savior, then the parables the parables are an invitation into a new reality. To see ourselves not clothed in our sin and shame anymore, but instead clothed in the perfect righteousness of another to see ourselves not as heirs to a passing world and its passing kingdoms, but of an eternal world with an eternal kingdom where God himself is king. It is an invitation to come further up and further in to the reality that is this God who would save the least and the lost, not in a way that suddenly makes everything clear, but in a way that with time and the work of the Spirit slowly but surely unfolds its riches in a way that transforms. Their grace. But for those who are outside the stable door, for those who look at Jesus and just see his weakness and his flesh and ultimately his cross, then all they see it's the stable and its door and not the glory that is contained therein. The darkness gets darker still. Jesus, Jesus is saying that's how the parables work. And it all depends on one question and one question only. What do you think about me? And the disciples, they must have looked perplexed because then Jesus says to them, you know, do you not, do you not understand yet? If you don't understand this, you're not gonna understand anything else that I say. And then he explains the parable. And he says at the heart of this parable is really just one concern. It's not how smart you are. It's not whether you have the brain that can untangle this parable with all of its its depths and its mysteries. It's not how good you are. It's not if you're religious or if you're irreligious. It is simply this. How are we hearing the word of God in Christ? Verse 14 says that's what the sower is sowing. He is taking the word and casting it out into the world everywhere that he can, and the chief concern of every single one of these soils, the thing that distinguishes each one from the other, it's not the content of that word, it's the way that they are hearing that word. Jesus, in essence, is saying, this is my ministry. I'm the sower who has come into the world and is sowing the seeds of my kingdom everywhere that I can. I don't care if you're the pastor or the prostitute. I don't care if you were rich or if you were poor, a beggar or a king. I don't care if you're a member of my family or you are a tax collector sitting at a booth. I am offering myself to you. Listen to me. And this, this is the question, the question that is burning through the whole parable. It's how in the end will we hear Jesus' word? You see this in each of the soils. Jesus says the first soil, the the seed that falls on the path, it, it represents what we might call the hard heart. He says in verse 15, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown when they hear. Satan immediately comes and takes the word that is sown in them. I mean, this, this is the religious leaders in the Gospel of Mark. The word comes and it's not a word they even want to hear. It's a word that they resist, it's a word that they hate and Satan Satan doesn't want to hear them to hear it either. Satan hates that word too and so what does Satan do? He snatches it away. Their hearts cooperate with his, And so there is no joy, no receptivity, only enmity or apathy or incredulity. It is a word that comes and just kind of bounces off a brick wall. The word is proclaimed and it goes nowhere. That's the hard heart. And then Jesus says there's also the seed that falls on the rocky soil, or what we might call the shallow heart. Verse 16. And these are the ones sown on the rocky ground. The ones who when they hear the word, notice that repetition of here, immediately receive it with joy. They gobble it up as soon as they hear it. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. Jesus says this, These are the people who, when they hear the word, they receive it with joy, but the roots of the gospel, it only gets skin deep. So that as soon as the perceived cost of following Jesus overtakes the perceived benefits, these people, they run in the other direction. And what is startling is that in the gospel of Mark, That's what the disciples seem to be. Because what happens to the disciples? Judas comes crashing through the undergrowth with his mob of men to arrest Jesus and Jesus doesn't resist the cross, Jesus submits to it and what does every single one of the disciples do? They flee. One of them, in what's probably the funniest text in the Bible, gets so scared he leaves his clothes behind. Peter, the most zealous of the disciples, Peter denies Jesus three times. When the perceived cost seems greater than the perceived benefit of what is in Christ, they run, they fall away, they leave their hearts weren't brick walls like the religious leaders but the end was exactly the same and then Jesus says there's a third soil this is the seed that falls in the thorny ground or what we might call the cluttered heart verse 18 and others are sown among the thorns they are those who hear the word but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. This is the hardest one to me, and maybe, if I'm really honest, the most scary. The first two soils are easy. You've got one where it's just straight resistance and another where they fall away. Where they are, it seems clear based on those actions. But did you notice what was different about this one? The the description that Jesus gives, that is not of people who receive it with joy and then fall away. It's not of people who resist the gospel or deny the gospel. It's of people who are still within the visible church, and yet the cares of this world have so gripped their hearts that it chokes out what might otherwise have been gospel life. That's frightening. There have been this rash of documentaries lately about different abuse scandals in the church. Mal and I have, have probably watched too many of these at this point, point. and what has struck me watching these, imperfect as they are, is that in so many of these cases, the people perpetuating the abuse are not people who deny the name of Jesus then or now, It's people who married Jesus to some other thing that they wanted and used him to justify that thing. They are people who tried to marry two brides. Christ and money, Christ and power, Christ and politics, Christ and performance, Christ and sex, Christ and some other thing. And in trying to marry two brides, they ended up faithful to only one. And destruction is what resulted. But here's where this hits a little closer to home, at least for me. This can look like religion. I was not, not in prep for this sermon, but I was reading through some stuff for Herman Boving for something I'm doing for school. And I stumbled on this part where he basically talks about exactly this kind of a heart. He says, some people who have this kind of a heart, they, they nod their head to religion, but in reality, there's nothing there. It's just, a, they silence the Holy Spirit. They sin against their conscience. They just continue on in cruder sins. It's basically you go to Jesus for grace just so you can do the things you wanna do. But then he says this, he says there are some who adopt a middle course, turn from coarse sins, the more socially unacceptable ones, become staid and religious in their walk, attend church, become zealous advocates for the church, missions, etc. Such people often become hypocrites, They bend their heads like a bulrush, they bow them in prayer, torture their souls the whole day with fasting, and spread sackcloth and ashes over themselves. Among them we often find the critics, the nitpickers, those who never come to the point of being born again and missed all spiritual life, but still used the standard preparatory experience, some long-ago memory of spiritual life, their baptisms, their church attendance, their scripture reading, and boast about it. They are like a foolish child who is too busy to be born. There are people for whom there is some degree of external conformity, but there is no internal reality. Those who have the form of godliness but deny its power. And here's why I say this alarms me. Who in this room, no matter how long you follow Jesus, who can say your heart is free from the cares of this world? I I can't. And yet Jesus says, If those things are left untended, not only can they choke out gospel life, they will. They will take what looked like fruit and they will reduce it to an unfruitful husk. But then Jesus goes to one last soil. The good soil. The receptive heart. Verse 20, but those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. What makes the good soil good? It's not that these are people who are inherently better than the others. It's not that They are somehow better at sanctifying their hearts. Good soil doesn't equal good people. It's bad people who by God's grace have seen a good Christ. Who in the light of the gospel have come to see that their sin, it is deeper than they ever imagined. But the love of God in Christ, it is deeper still. It is people who, as Jesus said to the disciples in John 6, when Jesus comes to you and says, do you want to go away like everybody else, say what Peter did. Lord, where else shall we go? Because you have the words of eternal life. Now this, this is what separates the good soil from the bad. And the other soils, the path and the rocky and the thorny, in your English Bibles, it looks exactly the same as the good soil, the word hear, they hear the word. But in the Greek, there is a massive difference between the first three and the last one. In the first three, Jesus uses what we call the aorist tense, meaning it's an action that is done in the past and has no ongoing significance. It's someone who hears the word, and while they, maybe they seem to accept it and to embrace it in the end, it goes in one ear and out the other. But in verse 20, Jesus doesn't use the aorist tense. He uses the present. It's the one who hears the word now and ongoingly who comes moment by moment, day by day, to the feet of Jesus and passes through the stable door because they have come to see that the way they bear fruit it is not in their own power, it's in his. It's those who allow the sower and his seed to transform them from the inside out. Jesus says that's the good soil. That's the way God's hidden kingdom comes and grows. And notice the fruit. It's not some fruit, it's not normal fruit. It is 30, 60, 100 fold. It's the farmer winning the lottery. And here, here is what we need to hear or understand if we're going to underst- apply this text in any way. What kind of soil you seem to be is not a static thing. What you seem to be right now may not be what you prove to be in the end, and if you want to know how I think that or why I think that you have only to look at the disciples. They look like the rocky soil, but what do we know about everyone but Judas? They were the good soil, weren't they? Here's what matters. It's what kind of soil are you now but also what kind of soil will you be on the day of Jesus' return, the day of the harvest? Are you listening now and ongoingly and embracing the gift of God and the gospel from the heart again and again and again? You may look at yourself this morning and say, I feel like like the seed that's been cast on the path. Satan just snatches it away. I feel like the rocky soil or the cost, it seems greater than I can bear and so I'm not gonna stick around with this. Or maybe, maybe you're like me and you look at your heart and you see the cares of this world, those thorns and thistles that always seem to be threatening to choke out the gospel life. And there is that question each and every one of us is asking if that's the case, what do we do? And Jesus says the answer is very simple, listen, to me. Because why has Jesus given us this text? Why is He still with reckless abandon throwing the seed of His word at the ground of our hearts? Because Jesus' heart, it's not to close the door of the stable, it's to open it. It's not that you would hear and not understand and see and not perceive. It's that you would turn and be forgiven. And here's how you know that. Because who is Jesus? Jesus is not just the sower. Jesus is the seed. The one who, as he says in John 12, out of love for us falls to the ground with a love that seems reckless and wasteful and dies. And in dying does what? Bears much fruit. Jesus says I'm the one who in my resurrection power can take your barren heart and make it a fruitful one. And I'm the one who can take a heart that is full of the cares of this world that would choke it out if left untended. I'm the one who through the gospel can expel those cares with a power of an expulsive, the power of a new affection. And when we join with Jesus, casting those seeds as he has called us to do, though the progress of the kingdom seems oh so weak, Jesus says we can do it with this certainty. It will bear fruit. Richard Sibbs, an old Puritan, he, he used this analogy of a farmer. He said, Imagine you have a farmer and you've just told him that if he will just attend to his duties as a farmer, till the soil, throw the seed, water the plants, pull up the weeds, he is guaranteed, no matter what happens, he is going to have a bumper crop. If you told him that and you could guarantee it, do you think the farmer is going to turn around and burn his plow? Do you think. He's gonna sit on his hands and say, you know what, I think I'm gonna take a break this year. No. He says, if that farmer has that guarantee, he is gonna put his shoulder to the plow and fight all the harder. Why? Because he knows the labor will not be in vain. God, in the word of the gospel, he has given us just such a guarantee. When we come to him, and allow the sower and his seed to do their work in our hearts. It's not a question of if we will bear fruit. It's how and when and to what degree. The kingdom of God is a mysterious kingdom. It's a hidden kingdom that doesn't leave massive monuments. There's no pyramids, there's no coliseums proclaiming its glory. There's just a blood-stained cross and an empty tomb. And those may not seem like very big things, but they do tell us this. Christ's kingdom may have an inauspicious beginning, but it has a glorious end. There is a harvest coming, born of God's grace, that will transform each and every one of us who is in him in ways that we could not even begin to conceive of or imagine, and not just us, but his world in it. And how do we know this is true? Because of the one who is both sower and seed, Christ Jesus our Lord. As the Father says of his Son in Mark 9, this, this is my beloved Son. Listen to him. Amen. Gracious Father, we are so thankful for a God who loves people like us, who doesn't leave us as we are, but transforms us from the inside out through the word of the gospel. We pray, Lord, would would you give us ears to hear it and eyes to see it, that we would turn and be forgiven, that we would be those who bear much fruit. Would you do this now, as you surely will, in the precious name of your Son,
0: Jesus.